Hi everyone, uh, my name is Michelle and we are going to continue in um, reading John 7, uh, starting from verse 25 until verse 52, uh, so the remainder of the chapter. Um, if you'd like to follow on in the Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 1118, um, otherwise of course on the projection on the wall. John 7, verse 25. At that point, some of, the, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not, you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the, scriptures has, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not, yet, had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you, Narlene, who led us in prayer.
Now, one of the convictions we have as a church is that the Word of God is indeed the Word of God. That is what we believe. And so even in a story like this, it's not just a story recorded down for us to read and to see what happened, but it's a message from God to us. And really, in this, in this passage today, it's a message for us to believe. And so let's ask that God will help us as we reflect on these words from him to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning the med- meditations of our hearts will be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, how you judge anyone or anything says more about you than what you are judging what do you think about that statement how you judge says more about you than what you are judging there's some truth in that isn't there i remember years ago now this was before kids came along before bible college yvonne and myself we had the opportunity to go to europe for a holiday and what do you do in europe you visit galleries and museums and one we visited was the Louvre in Paris. Now, many of you may have visited that place. And people say it takes many days to really see the Louvre, to visit the paintings, to see the galleries, to see all there is to see in that, in that wonderful museum. Now, do you know how long it took us to go through the Louvre? Probably two hours. And why is that? It's because we went in only looking for the Mona Lisa. So we went... Look for the Mona Lisa, we saw the paintings. It takes us only about one second to see a painting. People stood there watching a painting, not moving, for, for a long time. It takes us one second. We go in, we see the artifacts, we see the statues, we saw the Mona Lisa. And we weren't too impressed, it was quite small. And then we left. Now what do you think that says about me? This is the Louvre we're talking about. People take days to get through it. It took us probably only two hours. Well, what it says, I'm I'm just wasting money here. But what it also says, perhaps, is that I'm just unsophisticated. You see, how I judge says more about me than what I am judging. It says I'm unsophisticated, I'm uncultured, I have no appreciation of the arts at all. So it says more about me than what I saw in the galleries. And I felt the same way. Um, At the first ballet I watched with Yvonne, she likes the ballet, and I found it like it was suffocating. I couldn't stand it. <laughs> but again, how I judge speaks more about me than what I'm judging. And this is particularly true when it comes to people. How we judge someone says more about you than the one you are judging. Now, what do you think about that? How you judge someone says more about you than the one you are judging. If I look at you, if I observe you, how you dress, your hairstyle, how you walk, how you speak, what you do, and I make a judgment on that. How I judge says more about me than you, and it might perhaps reveal that I'm envious. It might perhaps reveal that I have my own pride and insecurities it might even reveal my own heart the darkness of my own heart how you judge someone says more about you than the one you are judging and this is especially true when it comes to God 
How you see God says far more about you than it does God. How you see Jesus, the Son of God, says far more about you than Jesus. And so how we judge Jesus speaks far more about us than him. And getting this wrong, getting this wrong, it's a bit like digging your own grave. And that's what we want to avoid. But that's what we see in this passage in chapter 7. And so let's have a look. Do again, keep your Bibles open. This is our habit because we want to be hearing with our ears but also our eyes as we look down to the text. Now in this chapter, we see so many people getting Jesus wrong. They just get him wrong. They judge him wrongly. We meet the brothers of Jesus. We meet the Jews. We meet the Jews from Jerusalem. We meet the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the chief priests. And they all have a go at judging Jesus. They place him in the dock. They hold the gavel, thinking that they're the judge of who Jesus is. They place themselves in position over Jesus. And so firstly in this chapter, we meet the brothers of Jesus. Now no doubt, these were the brothers who grew up with Jesus. They would have heard of the stories of the miraculous birth about Jesus from their parents. They would have seen of the miracles Jesus performed. But note in verse 5, have a look there. His own brothers did not believe in him. And so at this point in their life, they did not believe their brother. They did not believe Jesus. They're probably thinking, this brother of ours, he's a bit crazy, he's a bit cuckoo, he's going around claiming to be the son of God. Now, of course, that later changed. They did end up believing, but only after the resurrection. The book of James in the New Testament, that was written by the brother of Jesus. But here in this story, they stood in judgment over Jesus. They thought they knew and worked out Jesus. They knew what he was about. They, they thought, well, Jesus, you just want to become famous, don't you? You just want to become famous, make yourself known. So why don't you go to Jerusalem where there is a feast? Many thousands of people will be there. Perform your miracles there and you'll make many more disciples. You see, that's what they said. Verse 3, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now they're saying that almost out of mockery to Jesus. You want to become famous, Jesus, so become famous. Get famous. And they're presuming upon the intent of Jesus. Now we all know how bad it is to presume on the intentions of others. I mean, how is it that we have eyes to see what happens in the heart of others? Have you ever experienced the, the time where you presumed upon the intentions of others, but you got it terribly wrong? You got it terribly wrong. You misjudged. You see, how you judge says more about you than the one you are judging. And here, the brothers of Jesus, they're doing that with Jesus, presuming upon his intent. And so how did Jesus answer? Well, Jesus puts them back in their place. Look at verse 6. The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. What did Jesus mean? He's saying to his brothers, you have no idea 
of the timing and purposes of God. Now remember this, this hour, this time that has not yet come. It's a theme that's been reoccurring in the Gospel of John. The time is speaking about the time of the glorification of Jesus. It's speaking about the time when Jesus will be lifted up on the cross, killed, crucified. And so they're thinking, well, Jesus, you just want to get famous. But Jesus came to die. That's why he came. They judge Jesus' intent. But now Jesus turns around and judges them, exposes their deeds. What the brothers said here showed to Jesus that they have aligned themselves with the world. And what that means is that their deeds were evil. Look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. Now, no one likes to be told that they're wrong. And worse, no one likes to be told that they're evil. And that's what Jesus is saying to his brothers. And that's what Jesus did. You see, when the light came into the world, it exposed the filthiness, the dirtiness, the disgust, the darkness of the world. And no one likes that. That's why they wanted to kill Jesus. And it's the same today in our world. And I wonder whether this is at least one of the reasons why so many people reject Jesus. It's always uncomfortable to come to Jesus because he will expose you. He will reveal what's on your heart. He exposes the darkness. You see, it's the same today. Our society, no one likes to be told that adultery is wrong. Cheating on your husband or wife is wrong. Greed is wrong. Pride is wrong. Selfishness is wrong. In fact, more than that, it is evil. Jesus will call it evil. The world hated Jesus then and continues to hate Jesus now. And so here they judge Jesus' intent, but Jesus exposes their deeds. How you judge a person says more about you. And now we arrive at the festival. It's the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is one of the three great feasts when all the Jews from the Mediterranean would flock and make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And now we see it's the Jews' turn to place Jesus in the dock. They make themselves judge over Jesus. They hold the gavel. And here they question his authority. Verse 15. How did this man get such learning without having studied? You see, they're making a judgment. You did not train in our schools. You did not have mentors like the mentors of our rabbis. You have no credentials. And so what right do you have to go around teaching and influencing people about the kingdom of God, about heaven, about hell, about judgment? Well, Jesus responds. He gives his credentials. It comes from God. And there's no higher authority than God. Verse 16, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. And so Jesus is saying to them, whatever school of learning, training you receive, my authority comes from God himself. And so they question Jesus. They place him in the dock. They think they're judge. But Jesus turns it around and now he exposes their heart. You say, who is really being judged here? Look at verse 19 now. 
Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Now, of course, they would deny that. And so verse 20, you are demon-possessed. Who is trying to kill you? Now, you have to understand how serious that accusation was against Jesus. I mean, this was the Son of God, the one who is pure and righteous and good and perfect. But yet they call him demon-possessed. It just shows how wrong human judgments can get, especially when it comes to Jesus. But yet Jesus exposes their heart. They say they keep the law of God, but yet they break it. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. They got angry at that for doing good, for having compassion and mercy. But yet here they try to kill, and they don't see the irony in that. And so Jesus exposes their heart. And in verse 24 here, he shows them their problem. Verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. That is, if you're going to judge Jesus, look at his miracles, his signs, his teachings. How can you see all of that and call him the devil? And so you see, how you judge someone says more about you than the one you are judging. And here Jesus exposes their heart. It is evil. And of course, this should also get us all to reflect. This was the problem back then, but it's the same problem today. My views of Jesus speaks more about me than him. Well, the judgment of Jesus continues. They place him in the dock again, and now they question his origins. And they think, well, we know this guy, we know where he's from. He's the son of the carpenter. He's from Nazareth. There's nothing special about him at all. He's not the Christ. And so verse, verse 27, but we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. But now Jesus responds. You have no idea what you're talking about. Verse 28, yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I'm not here on my own. But he who sent me is true. You do not know him. Now you have to feel the weight of that statement. This is Jesus speaking to the people of God, the God whom they claim to worship. And Jesus says, you do not know God. But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Jesus is claiming divine origins. He comes from God and he will return to his father in heaven. Verses 33 and 34, Jesus says, I'm with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. You see, they made a judgment on Jesus. They judged his origins, they tried to judge Jesus, but Jesus turned it around, and Jesus judges them, exposes their destiny. They cannot be with Jesus. They cannot come with Jesus. What do you think that means? It means that these religious people will have no place in the kingdom of God. These religious people, they have no place in heaven if they continue to judge him by mere appearances. You see, how you judge someone shows more about you than the one you are judging. Especially true here when it comes to Jesus. And this is so serious. I mean, going to the Louvre, the museum and galleries, 
making a wrong judgment, not appreciating the arts. I mean, there's no serious consequences of that. I just wasted a whole lot of money. Does not affect my eternal destiny at all. But here, make the wrong judgment about Jesus and that will make an eternal difference. The eternal destiny of every single soul is tied not to how well we live, not how good we are, not to our behaviour, our moral standards, not to how much we try. It is tied to how we see Jesus. And now Jesus makes that explicitly clear. He now gives his judgment. He turns it on them now. He places them in the dock. And in verse 37 we read, On the last and greatest day of the feast. Now this was the feast of tabernacles and it was on the greatest day. Now this was a feast that the Jews celebrated annually to commemorate God's deliverance of them from Egypt. And it was also to celebrate God's provision as they were wandering around in the desert. It was to remember God's wonderful provision of water from the rock, of leading them with the pillar of fire. And so in the wilderness, they pitched up tents, they set it up and they set it down and they followed God around. It was a festival to remember God's provision. But it was also a festival that looked forward towards the kingdom of the Messiah. They were longing for that Messiah to come. They were longing for the kingdom of the Messiah, that the journey would one day end. And at this festival, what happened was that each day, to remember God's provision of water, the priests, they would go to the pool of Siloam with a golden vessel. They would carry water all the way to the temple and they would offer it before God at the altar. And so at this feast, a lot of water was involved. And that's why Jesus said what he said. That's the context. And so verses 37 and 38. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, and perhaps as Jesus was speaking, they were pouring out the water. Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now you have to try to grasp how shocking this, this scene would have been. How shocking the, the picture would have been. There or there, thousands upon thousands of people at the temple in Jerusalem remembering God's provision at their annual festival, celebrating God's provision. But now Jesus comes along, he stands up at the greatest day and he says to all of them, come to me, I'm the one who provides. This feast is about me. It is shocking. It would be as shocking as, or in fact far more shocking than, let's just say, if you were to host a big celebration, a big dinner party at your place, you invite all your friends and guests, and I come along, and before the dessert is served, I stand up and say, thank you for coming. Thank you, this, this celebration is about me. I mean, that is shocking. You host it, it's not about me. But here, this was about Jesus. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said, this is about me. This feast was looking forward to him. 
come to me and drink. And you can see why water is used. Water is connected to life. You need water to live. And the experts tell us if you don't have water for three days, you would die. And that's why in our space explorations, they're always looking for water. If there's water, it might sustain life. But Jesus, he says, I give living water. This is the end of your wanderings in the desert. This is the end of your pilgrimage. This is the end of your exile. You can now come home. Come to me and drink. And you see the theme of water and life and salvation. It, it comes from Old Testament expectations and Jesus picks up on that. And so in Isaiah 12, we read this. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Jesus is saying, that is what I offer you. You've been waiting for me. And in Isaiah 55, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Now isn't that interesting? You've got no money, but you can buy, which means it's free. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? And so Jesus is standing up at this feast and, say, and says, Come to me and you'll be satisfied. You see, what Jesus is offering here is life to all who comes. But at the same time, Jesus is casting his judgment. If you are thirsty, you come, you drink, you believe, you have life. But Jesus also casts his judgment. And here's the judgment. If you don't, anyone who does not come, if you're too lazy, you can't be bothered, you don't think it's important enough or you just don't want to, then what's the judgment? You will die. You come, you live, you don't, you die. And Jesus is making a very clear point. It's you who needs me. It's not the other way around. Jesus does not need us. We need him. And however you judge Jesus, you judge yourself. It might be a digging of your own grave. And now we read on. What is this living water that Jesus offers to believers that will flow from within? Verse 39. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now why is it that Anyone who comes and drinks of Jesus, you can be completely satisfied. Not, not that we get stuff from God. What does Jesus tell us? We get God himself. You can be satisfied because you get the Spirit of God who dwells within you. It is because you can get real deep, lasting fellowship with God. The Spirit poured out after Jesus was glorified. That is, after he died. When the wrath of God was poured upon his Son for our sins and shame and guilt and wretched filth, when the wrath of God was poured out on his Son, the, love of, the wrath of God poured on his Son, the love of God poured out on us, and the Spirit of God was given. And that's why genuine believers are always different to all those in this world. 
distinctively different. It's because they have the Spirit of God in them. Why is it that Christians would always feel a deep sense of guilt and shame and sin when they go astray? Is it not the conviction of the Spirit within them? Why is it that Christians can feel the burden lifted, sins forgiven, shame washed clean? Is it not because of the assurance given by the Spirit of God? Why is it that Christians would even in difficulties are able to have this deep sense of comfort and peace and they will endure and persevere? Is it not because of the comforting work of the Spirit? Why is it that Christians would desire to grow in faith, in godliness, in maturity, in love, even if it costs them? Is it not the conforming work of the Spirit in them? Why is it that Christians would live with great expectations through all the trials and sufferings and hardships of life, holding on to the hope? How is that possible? Is it not because of our fellowship with the Spirit? We know we'll be with God forever in heaven. Like streams of living water, Jesus says, that flows from within him, drink and be satisfied. It's just like the old hymn. I've tried the broken cisterns. Ah, but how the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Now none but Christ can satisfy none other name for me there's love and life and lasting joy Christ Jesus found in thee there's no satisfaction outside of Christ there's only satisfaction in him and so you so you see there's this life on one side that is offered but at the same time there is judgment come and live reject and die so how you judge Jesus says far more about you than him. And so my question is, how do you judge Jesus? Where do you think you stand before him? Who is it that's really in the dock? Is it you or is it Christ? Well, it goes without saying, doesn't it? But it needs to be said, it is Christ who stands in judgment over us. And so how tragic it is that so many, so many, live their lives, walk this earth, heads held high, strutting around like, I own it all. This is my life and this is my world. And I keep Jesus in the dock. I hold the gavel, I make my judgment on him. Well, let me decide on you, Jesus. Let me decide whether I like you, Jesus. Let me decide whether I think you're true, Jesus. Let me decide whether I think you're worth it, Jesus. We think we're judge, but how great a tragedy. If anyone here would live such a life, only to one day find that it is Jesus who stands at judge, not us, not you, not me. We're in the dock. Our heads will be brought low. Our knees will be bent, for we will one day all meet the one who's not just a prophet, one who did not just merely perform miracles and certainly not one who was accused here as being demon-possessed. But we will all one day meet the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is he who judges. 
And so what does this mean? Well, it means we better know our place in this world and under God. Not thinking more highly of ourselves than we should and never thinking lowly of Christ. We live knowing our place in this world and before God. We are under him, subject to him, dependent on him and needing him. Now at the beginning I shared how, how when we visited the Louvre years ago, no appreciation of the arts at all. And going in there, it's not me making a judgment on the paintings, they were making a judgment on me. No appreciation, unsophisticated, uncultured. But I did go back, not to the Louvre, but to another gallery, the, the National Gallery here in Victoria. Now this time I went with someone who appreciated the arts, who knew what to look for, who could show me the details and help me see that you're meant to look at a painting for more than one second to appreciate it. And so this was uh, about three years ago with Philip and Helen Jensen. They stayed with us for a few days after camp. They showed us around. We went to see the Degas exhibition. We went to see Rembrandt and his paintings, the paintings from the Renaissance period. We went also over to the Australian ones. There's uh, Frederick McCubbin, Tom Roberts, the Heidelberg painters. You see how these names just rolled off my tongue now. And I see how sophisticated I've become. He explained to me the colours, you meant to see the depth, the strokes and the intricacies. I won't look at a gallery the same way again. But you see, judge wrongly and I missed out. I missed out on our time at the Louvre. We wasted our money. But judge rightly. And what happens is the gallery becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. It's filled with masterpieces that capture so much of life of our history of this world and as that becomes bigger and bigger I become smaller and smaller I know my place and if I know my place before Christ he becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and I realize my place I am so small before him so so small but yet he says to me and you if anyone is thirsty let him come and drink. Whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. So we come to him. We stay with him. We return to him every single day. For there we find satisfaction and fulfillment and contentment. For God gives us his own spirit who dwells within us. Let's pray.